Uh, I've spoken before on the uh, the topic of um, suffering, and I'm not going to go over um, that ground, but I I am going to um, talk um, basically through a biography. Um, so let's just pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we come and uh, consider uh, how you work in particular through pain and suffering, that you will uh, just in, uh, be an encouragement to us and that we pray that you will help us to um, be able to um, understand a little bit more of how you work in this world. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Uh, those, of, those of us who are old enough to remember Keith Green, remember Keith Green? will know what a dynamic servant of God he was. He was uh, zealous, uh, intense and utterly driven. And I was a teenager uh, growing up in the 70s and 80s um, and listening to the music of Keith Green. I found his music really challenging as a young Christian um, and at times very confronting. Uh, I eagerly awaited each of his albums and... um, he basically turned the Christian music industry on its head um, by releasing one of his albums, uh, at least one of his albums, so you want to go back to Egypt, uh, on a no-charge donation basis. Um, he was, in the view of the many he influenced, a modern-day prophet who called Christians to a life of uncompromising and sacrificial service. With his wife Melody, he established Last Days Ministries, which further influenced a generation of Christians with monthly newsletters and outreach events. On July 28, uh, 1982, Keith Green and 11 others boarded a Cessna 414, which was leased by Last Days Ministries for an aerial tour of their property. The overloaded plane crashed after takeoff, killing all on board, including Keith Green and two of his children, three-year-old Josiah and two-year-old Bethany. Uh, Keith's wife Melody was at home with one-year-old Rebecca and six weeks pregnant with their fourth child Rachel who was born in March 1983. On hearing the news I was uh, at once sad and angry and I thought well if I was God in control in control of the universe I would do things differently. I wouldn't remove from service one of my best foot soldiers. Over the years since, I've had cause to ponder why God works in the mysterious ways he often seems to, and it has prompted many questions for me. Why does God not impose himself rather more forcibly on his world? And why does he so often allow his servants to be treated badly? Why is the path to heaven a narrow one that few find? Couldn't it be a road to life that was wide and easy? And what of hell? Why does the alternative to eternal life have to be eternal punishment? Could not those who choose to reject God simply be obliterated, cease to exist? Well, except perhaps for the likes of Nero, Hitler, Stalin and Pol Pot. We want them to be punished. And why is suffering uh, such an apparently important plank in God's plan? Every notable servant of his, from Old Testament to New, seems to have suffered and think of people like Stephen and Paul and Peter and Christ himself. Do I press the right hand button? Thank you. 
So to quote Hebrews 11, um, we have uh, a, a kind of catalogue of, of things that Christians have suffered. It says, Others were tortured and refused to be released so that they might gain a better resurrection. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, they were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains and in caves and holes in the ground. That sounds like a a pretty unattractive lifestyle. And then there's that that hymn that we don't sing anymore, but um, I sing the song of the saints of God. And it goes, They loved their Lord so dear, so dear, and his love made them strong. And they followed the right for Jesus' sake, the whole of their good lives long. And one was a soldier, and one was a priest, and one was slain by a fierce wild beast. And there's not any reason, no, not the least, why I shouldn't be one too. Well, I can think of one right there. Um, so we confront this this whole uh, this whole um, uh, thing of, of suffering, and I thought we'd have a look at um, Adoniram Judson as a kind of like a case study. Um, the short answer to all the questions I raised earlier is that God works in the often mysterious ways he does because it's bound up in his character and nature. Um, but I want to have a look at Adoniram Judson and I intend this to be the first of a number of sermons um, I preach that are centred on the lives of extraordinary Christians. We've got a book at home which is uh, called 50, 50 People That Every Christian Should Know About. And uh, it's a real... Um, it's a really challenging uh, look at um, the biographies of, of these um, men and women of faith. When Adoniram Judson entered Burma in July 1813, it was a hostile and utterly unreached place. William Carey had told Judson in India a few months earlier not to go there. It probably would have been considered a closed country today, with anarchic uh, despotism, fierce war with Siam, enemy raids, constant rebellion, no religious tolerance. All the previous missionaries had died or left. But Judson worked there with his 23-year-old wife of 17 months. He went there, sorry, he went there with his 23-year-old wife of 17 months. He was 24 years old and he worked there for 38 years until his death at the age of 61 with one trip home to New England after 33 years. The price he paid was immense. He was a seed that fell into the ground and died, and the fruit God gave is celebrated even in scholarly works like David Barrett's World Christian Encyclopedia. The the largest Christian force in Burma is the Burma Baptist Convention, which owes its origin to the pioneering activity of the American Baptist missionary Adoniram Judson. Judson was a Baptist when he entered Burma in 1813, even though he left New England as a Congregationalist. His mind had changed during the 114-day voyage to India, and Carey's colleague, William Ward, baptised Adoniram and and Anne Judson in India on September 6, 1812. Today, Patrick Johnston, who was the author of... um, uh, Operation World estimates that Myanmar, which is Burma's new name, the Myanmar Baptist Convention to be 3,700 congregations 
with 617,781 uh, members, 617,781 members, and 1,900,000 affiliates. The fruit of this dead seed. Of course, there are others beside Adoniram Judson, hundreds of others over time, but they too came and gave away their lives. Most of them died much younger than Judson. They only served to make the point. The astonishing fruit in Myanmar today has grown in the soil of the suffering and death of many missionaries, especially Adoniram Judson. Yes, the cost was very high. But in God's perfect economy, his suffering had a plain purpose. John Piper says this, I am persuaded from scripture and from the history of missions that God's design for the evangelization of the world and the consummation of his purposes includes the suffering of his ministers and missionaries. To put it more plainly and specifically, God designs that the suffering of his ministers and missionaries is one essential means in the joyful, triumphant spread of the gospel among all the peoples of the world. Our Lord Jesus said to us in very solemn words, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And then he adds this, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. In other words, a fruitful life and an eternal life come from this, dying like a seed and hating your life in this world. And Piper asks the question, if Christ delays his return another 200 years, a mere fraction of a day in his reckoning, which of us will have suffered and died so that the triumphs of grace will be told? Who will labour so long and so hard and so perseveringly that in 200 years there will be 2 million Christians in many of the 1040 window peoples who can scarcely recall their Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist roots? Adoniram Judson hated his life in this world and was a seed that fell into the ground and died. In his sufferings he filled up what was lacking in Christ's afflictions in unreached Burma. Therefore his life bore much fruit, and he lives to enjoy it today and forever. He would no doubt say it was worth it. Judson was a Calvinist, but he did not wear his Calvinism on his sleeve. His father, who was a Congregationalist pastor in Massachusetts, had studied with Jonathan Edwards' student uh, Joseph Bellamy, and Adoniram inherited a deep belief in the sovereignty of God. The great importance this has here is to stress that his deep confidence in God's overarching providence through all calamity and misery sustained him to the end. He said, If I had not felt certain that every additional trial was ordered by infinite love and mercy, I could not have survived my accumulated sufferings. This was the unshakable confidence of all three of his wives, Anne, Sarah and Emily. For example, Anne, who married Judson on the February 5th, 1812, and left with him on the boat on February the 19th at age 23, bore three children to Adoniram. All of them died. The first baby, nameless, was born dead just as they sailed from India to Burma. The second child, Roger Williams Judson, lived 17 months and died. The third, Maria Elizabeth Butterworth Judson, lived to be two and outlived her mother by six months and then died. When their second child died, Anne Judson wrote, our hearts were bound up with this child. 
we felt he was our earthly all, our only source of innocent recreation in this heathen land. But God saw it was necessary to remind us of our error and to strip us, strip us of, our own, of our only little all. Oh, may it not be vain that he has done it. May we so improve it that he, should, he will stay his hand and say it is enough. In other words, what sustained this man and his three wives was a rock-solid confidence that God is sovereign and God is good. All, all things come from his hand for the good, the incredibly painful good of his children. There are roots of this missionary sustaining confidence in God's goodness and providence. One, of course, was uh, Judson's father. That's what he believed and that's what he lived. A second source of his confidence was the Bible. Judson was a lover of the word of God. The main legacy of his 38 years in Burma was a complete translation of the Bible into Burmese and a dictionary that all later missionaries could use. Once a Buddhist teacher said that he could not believe believe that Christ suffered the death of, of the cross because no king allows his son such indignity. Judson responded, Therefore you are not a disciple of Christ. A true disciple inquires not whether a fact is agreeable to his own reason, but whether it is in the book. His pride has yielded to the divine testimony. Teacher, your pride is still unbroken. Break down your pride and yield to the word of God. If you'll indulge me at this point, I just want to offer the observation that in 2014 there is no shortage of people telling God what he should think and a good many of them claim to be Christians. They do not yield to the word of God, as Judson put it, but base their opinions and actions on their own reason rather than what God has plainly said in his word. And we need to be careful, church, that we don't try and reason out our faith and come up with a reasonable faith which is at odds with what scripture says. A third source of Judson's confidence in the goodness and detailed providence of God was the way God saved him. It is a remarkable story. He was a brilliant boy. His mother taught him to read in one week when he was three to surprise his father when he came home from a trip. When he was 16, he entered Brown University as a sophomore and graduated at the top of his class three years later in 1807. What his godly parents didn't know was that Adoniram was being lured away from the faith by a fellow student named Jacob Eames, who was a deist. Deism gained prominence in the 17th and 18th century during the Age of Enlightenment among intellectuals raised as Christians who believed in one God but found fault with organised religion and did not believe in supernatural events such as miracles, the inerrancy of scripture or the Trinity. By the time Judson had finished was finished, he had no Christian faith. He kept this concealed from his parents until his 20th birthday, August 9, 1808, when he broke their hearts with his announcement that he had no faith and that he intended to go to New York and learn to write for the theatre, which he did six days later on a horse his father gave him as part of his inheritance. It didn't prove to be the life of his dreams. He attached himself to some strolling players and, as he later said, lived a reckless vagabond life, finding lodgings where he could and bilking the landlord where he found the opportunity. That disgust with what he found there was the beginning of several remarkable providences. 
he went to visit his uncle, Ephraim in Sheffield, but found there instead a pious young man who stunned him by being firm in his Christian convictions without being austere and dictatorial. Strange that he should find this young man there instead of his uncle. The next night he stayed in a small village inn where he had never been before. The innkeeper apologised that his sleep might be interrupted because there was a man critically ill in the next room. Through the night he heard comings and goings and low voices and groans and gasps. It bothered him to think that the man next to him might not be prepared to die. He wondered about himself and had terrible thoughts of his own dying. He felt foolish because good deists weren't supposed to have these struggles. When he was leaving in the morning he asked if the man next door was better. He is dead, said the innkeeper. Judson was struck with the finality of it all. On his way out he asked, Do you know who he was? Oh yes, a young man from the college in Providence. Name was Eames, Jacob Eames. Hudson could ha- Judson could hardly move. He stayed there for hours, pondering the death of his dearest friend. If his friend Eames was right, then this was a meaningless event. But Judson could not believe it. That hell should open in that country inn and snatch Jacob Eames, his dearest friend and guide, from the next bed. This could not, simply could not, be pure coincidence. His conversion was not immediate, but now it was sure. God was on his trail, like the Apostle Paul on on the Damascus Road, and there was no escape. We've heard C.S. Lewis speak of uh, a similar experience where he felt that God was actually chasing him and, and hunting him down. There were months of struggle. He entered Andover Seminary in October 1808 and on December 2nd made solemn dedication of himself to God. The fire was burning for missions at Andover. On on June 28, 1810, Judson and others presented themselves to the Congregationalists for missionary service in the East. He had met Anne that same day and fell in love. After knowing Anne Hasseltine for one month, he declared his intention to become a suitor and wrote to her father the following letter. And I can't help myself but put this up because um, <laughs> I want you to think if, if this had been your marriage proposal to the, the father of your prospective wife. He wrote this, I, na- I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardship and suffering of missionary life. Whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. (laughs) Imagine the father reading this. (coughs) Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left, left his heavenly home and died for her and for you? for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in the hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteousness brightened with the acclamations of praise which will redound to her Saviour from heathens saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Her father, apparently amazed, put the letter in the two-hard basket and said she could make her own mind up. (coughs) Uh, and she accepted, amazingly she accepted. She wrote to her friend uh, Lydia Kimball, I feel willing and expect, if nothing in providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have, I have about come to, to the determination 
to give up my, uh, all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends, and go where God in his providence shall see fit to place me. Now there's a statement, isn't it? And didn't Jesus say that, um, that that's, the sort of, that's the sort of thing that we can expect? Um, that's to, to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow him can sometimes mean that. They were married a year later, a uh, year and a half later on February the 5th, 1812 and sailed for India 12 days later with two other couples and two single men divided among two ships in case one went down. After a time in India, they chose to risk Rangoon and arrived there July 13, 1813. There began a lifelong battle in the 108 degree heat. What's that? 40, 42, 43 degrees. Uh, with cholera, malaria, dysentery and unknown miseries that would take two of Judson's wives and seven of his 13 children and colleague after colleague in death. And just remember, they didn't have the medical help that we have now. The first news from home arrived nearly arrived two years later on September the fifth, eighteen fifteen. They had died to the nearness of family. Adoniram would never see his mother or father or brother again. He did not return for thirty three years. Missionary time in those days was very slow. It was a world of difference from today. If someone was sick enough, the typical remedy to save life was a sea voyage. So an entire work could be put on hold, so to speak, for three to six months. Or it could be longer, eight years into their mission, Anne was so ill that the only hope was a trip home. She sailed on August the 12th, 1821, and she returned on December 5th, uh, 1823, two years and four months later. And when she arrived, she had, he had not heard from her for ten months. One of the joys was seeing some of God's goodness in the dark providences. For example, when Anne was recovering in the States, she wrote a book, An Account of the American Baptist Mission to the Burman Empire. It had a huge influence in stirring up recruits and prayer and finances. This would never have happened without her sickness and two, sickness and two-year absence. But most of the time, the good purposes for pain were not that clear. Through all the struggles with sickness and interruptions, Judson laboured to learn the language, translate the Bible, and do evangelism on the streets. Six years after they had arrived, they baptised their first convert. The sowing was long and hard, the reaping even harder for years. But in 1831, there was a new spirit in the land. Just listen to this. Judson wrote, The spirit of inquiry is spreading everywhere, through the whole length and breadth of the land. We have distributed nearly 10,000 tracts, giving to none but those who ask. I presume there have been 6,000 applications at the house. Some come two or three months' journey from the borders of Siam and China. Sir, we hear that there is an eternal hell. We are afraid of it. Do give us a writing that will tell us how to escape it. Others from the frontiers of Cathay, 100 miles north of Ava. Sir, we have seen a writing that tells about an eternal God. Are you the man that gives away such writings? If so, pray give us one, for we want to know the truth before we die. Others from the interior of the country where the name of Jesus Christ is little known. Are you Jesus Christ's man? Give us a writing that tells us about Jesus Christ. 
that there had been an enormous price to pay between the first convert in 1819 and this outpouring of God's power in 1831. In 1823, Adoniram and Anne moved from Rangoon to Ava, the capital, about 300 miles inland and further up the Irrawaddy River. It was risky to be that near to the despotic emperor. In May of the next year, the British fleet arrived in Rangoon and bombarded the harbour. All Westerners were immediately viewed as spies, and Adoniram was dragged from his home, and on June 8, 1824, was put into prison. His feet were fettered, and at night a long horizontal bamboo pole was lowered and passed between the fettered legs and hoisted up till only the shoulder and heads of the prisoners rested on the ground. Anne was pregnant, but walked the two miles daily to the palace to plead that Judson was not a spy and that they should have mercy. She got some relief for him so that he could come out into a courtyard, but still the prisoners got vermin in their hair and the rotting food, sorry, in their hair amid the rotting food, and had to be shaved bald. Almost a year later they were suddenly moved to a more distant village, village prison, Gaunt, with hollow eyes, dressed in rags, crippled from the torture. There the mosquitoes from the rice paddies almost drove them mad on their bloody feet. The daughter Maria had been born by now, and Anne was almost as sick and thin as Adoniram, but still pursued him with her baby to take care of him as she could. Her milk dried up, and the jailer had mercy on them and actually let Judson take the baby each evening into the village and beg the women to nurse, the, nurse his baby. On November 1825, Judson was suddenly released. The government needed him as a translator in negotiations with Britain. The long ordeal was over, 17 months in prison and on the brink of death, with his wife sacrificing herself and her baby to care for him as she could. Anne's health was broken. Eleven months later she died, on October 24, 1826, and six months later their daughter died, in 1827. While he was still suffering in prison, Adoniram had said to a fellow prisoner, It is possible my life will be spared. If so, with what ardour shall I pursue my work? If not, his will be done. The door will be opened for others who would do the work better. But now that his wife and daughter were gone, darkness began to settle over his soul. In July, three months after the death of his little girl, he got word that his father had died eight months earlier. The psychological effects of these losses were devastating. Self-doubt overtook his mind and he wondered if he had become a missionary for ambition and fame, not humility and self-denying love. He began to read the Catholic mystics, Madame Guion, Fenelon, Thomas Akempis, etc., who led him into solitary asceticism and various forms of self-mortification. He dropped his Old Testament translation work, the love of his life, and, treat, and retreated more and more from people and from anything that might conceivably support pride or promote his pleasure. He refused to eat outside the mission. He destroyed all letters of commendation. He formally renounced the honorary doctor he formally announced, renounced the honorary doctorate of divinity that Brown University had given him in 1823 by writing a letter to the American Baptist magazine. He gave all his private wealth, about $6,000, to the Baptist board. He asked that his salary be reduced by one quarter and promised to give more to missions himself. In October 1828, he built a hut in the jungle some distance from the mission house and moved in on October 24, 1828 the second anniversary of Anne's death, to live in total isolation. He wrote in one letter home to Anne's relatives, My tears flow 
at the same time over the forsaken grave of my dear love and over the loathsome sepulchre of my own heart. He had a grave dug beside the hut and sat beside it contemplating the stages of the body's dissolution. He ordered all his letters in New England destroyed on condition of returning a legal document his sister needed. He retreated for 40 days alone further into the tiger-infested jungle and wrote in one letter that he felt utter spiritual desolation. God is to me the great unknown. I believe in him, but I find him not. His brother died on May 8, 1829 at the age of 35. Ironically, this proved the turning point of Judson's recovery because he had a reason to believe that the brother he had that he had left in unbelief 17 years earlier had died in faith. All through the year 1830, Adoniram was climbing out of his darkness. And you recall that it was in 1831, the next year, that he experienced the great outpouring of spiritual interest across the land. Is that a coincidence, or was it a God-ordained pattern for spiritual breakthrough in a dark and unreached place? He married Sarah Boardman, a missionary widow, on April 10, 1834, eight years after Anne died. They had eight children. Five survived childhood. She was a gifted partner and knew the language better than any but himself. But 11 years later, she was so sick that they both set sail for America with the three oldest children. They left the three youngest behind, one of whom died before Judson returned. Judson had not been to America now for 33 years and was only returning for the sake of his wife. As they rounded the tip of Africa in September 1845, Sarah died. The ship dropped anchor at St. Helena Island long enough to dig a grave and bury a wife and mother and then sail on. Pretty depressing, isn't it? This time Adoniram did not descend into the depths as before. He had his children, but even more his sufferings had had disengaged him from the hoping for too much in this world. He was learning how to hate his life in this world without bitterness or depression. He had one passion, to return and give his life for Burma. So his stay in the States was long enough to get his children settled and find a ship back. All that was left of the life he knew in New England was his sister. She had kept his room exactly as it had been 33 years earlier and would do that until the day she died. To everyone's amazement, Judson fell in love a third time, this time with Emily Chubbuck, and married her on June 2, 1846. She was 29, he was 57. She was a famous writer and left her fame and writing career to go with Judson to Burma. They arrived in November 1846, and God gave them four of the happiest years that either of them had ever, had ever known. On, their first an, on her first anniversary, 1847, she wrote, It has been far the happiest year of my life, and... What is in my eyes still more important, my husband says it has been among the happiest of his. I never met with any man who could talk so well day after day on every subject, religious, literary, scientific, political, and nice baby talk. They had one child, but then the old sickness attacked Adoniram one last time. The only hope was to send the desperately ill Judson on a voyage. On April 3, 1850, they carried Adoniram onto the onto a boat bound for the Isle of France with one friend, Thomas Rennie, to care for him. In his misery, he would be roused from time to time by terrible pain, ending in vomiting. One of his last sentences was, How few there are, how few there are who 
who die so hard. At 15 minutes after 4 on Friday afternoon, April 12, 1850, Adonara Judson died at sea, away from his family and Burmese church. The crew assembled quietly. The larboard port was opened. There were no prayers. The captain gave the order. The coffin slid through the port into the night. The location was latitude 13 degrees north, longitude 93 degrees east, almost in the eastward shadow of the Andaman Islands, and only a few hundred miles west of the mountains of Burma. The ship then sailed on towards the Isle of France. Ten days later, Emily gave birth to their second child, who died at birth. She learned four months later that her husband was dead. She returned to New England, New England that next January and died of tuberculosis three years later at the age of 37. The Bible was done, the dictionary was done. Hundreds of converts were leading the church. And today there are close to about, as we said before, 3,700 congregations of Baptists in Myanmar who trace their origin to this man's labour of love. Patrick Johnson says in Operation World that only in the 1990s did we get a reasonably complete listing of the world's peoples. For the first time we can see clearly what is left to be done. There are about 12,000 ethno-linguistic peoples in the world. About 3,500 of these have, on average, 1.2% Christian populations. About 20 million of the 1.7 billion people using the broadest nominal definition of Christian. Most of these least reach 3,500 peoples are in the 1040 window and are religiously unsympathetic to Christian missions. That means that we must go to these peoples with the gospel and it will be dangerous and costly. Some of us and some of our children will be killed and the events unfolding day by day in Iraq should remind us of that. The 1040 window is the rectangular area of North Africa, the Middle East and Asia approximately between 10 degrees north and 40 degrees north latitude. The 1040 window is often called the resistance belt and includes the majority of the world's Muslims, Hindus and Buddhists and it's there. In closing, Jesus said that the disciple is not above his teacher nor a servant above his master. If they have called the master of the house Bazir how much more will they malign those of his household? Suffering was not just a consequence of the Master's obedience and mission. It was the central strategy of his mission. It was the ground of his accomplishment. Jesus calls us to join him on the Calvary Road to take up our cross and to hate our lives in this world and fall into the ground like a seed and die that others might live. We are not above our Master. To be sure, our suffering does not atone for anyone's sins, but it is a deeper way of doing missions than we often realise. And that's a quote from John Piper. Life is fleeting. In a very short time, we will all give an account before Jesus Christ as to how well we have obeyed the command to make disciples of all nations. There is a rapidly growing need in our materialistic post-Judeo-Christian culture to evangelise. But as I've said on previous occasions from this pulpit, it will will not be done through Billy Graham-type crusades and rallies. As effective as that model once was, those days have passed. We can no longer expect Australians to have any kind of biblical framework or background knowledge to make sense of the gospel. 
we may have we have to resign ourselves in our cultural setting to a much tougher, more demanding form of evangelism and, dis- and disciple making, where we build relationships and allow people to see Christ in us before we've earned the right to use words to point them to Him. It's more demanding because those around us are more cynical about religion and there is a great deal of misconception that has to be overcome. I remember when I started uh, teaching at Galston um, and had six years of an incredible um, evangelism explosion where kids were becoming Christians and, um, and things like that. But Galston was in the Bible Belt. And on coming to Lithgow, I found that um, it was just a totally different ball game, much more pre-evangelistic. You might remember in 2012 we had um, Will Graham, uh, Billy Graham's grandson, came to Lithgow to uh, do a mission. He actually came to speak to... um, We had a a youth event on the Friday night at Lithgow High School and, well, it was almost a train wreck. uh, the, The message just... The kids just were completely switched off. They didn't, he spoke a, a word from the Bible, but the kids just did not have any of the framework to make sense of it. He actually had a much better, um, uh, much more effective time the, the following night, which was a night at uh, the Lithgow Showground Hall, and many older people came forward. Um, because that was the kind of setting that they actually had some of the, the background to make sense of what he was saying. We've arrived in Western cultures, at least, at a point that more closely resembles the New Testament church. We may gather in small churches and homes, like our home groups, to practice our faith, but we draw individuals into that circle through lifestyle evangelism, in which we go out to where they are and build bridges. If If we are going to be effective evangelists in this culture, we have to be intentional in the decisions we make. It may involve doing things or going places that are outside of our comfort zone. We may have to offer things that people around us want. And I think of the men's shed. I think of playgroup. I think of things that people actually want and need. But we certainly can't expect to quietly practice our faith within the confines of our church walls and expect people to come to us. And we have to strive mightily to avoid the greatest danger in getting sucked into the values of the materialistic culture that surrounds us and therefore losing our edge. And there are the many peoples of the world uh, without any indigenous Christian movement today. They are over there. We have to be open to God's call as to whether we are prepared to do the hard work here or the hard work there. And we support some missionaries who are doing the hard work there. But we have to be open to whether God wants us to go over there and do the hard work instead of staying here and doing the hard work. Christ is not enthroned there. His grace is unknown there and people are perishing with no access to the gospel. Most of these hopeless people do not want us to come. At least they don't think that that they do. They are hostile to Christian missions. Today is the final frontier and the Lord still says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Let's just pray. Heavenly Father, as we reflect on the huge uh, cost um, that people like uh, Adoniram Judson made, the huge sacrifice they had to make, but then we think 
of the enormous sacrifice that you made in coming to this world. And Lord, we are grateful um, for what you have shown us and our heart burns for people who um, have not heard the gospel or people who have, uh, who have grown up in our culture who are so far removed from, from any biblical truth that um, it's all new to them. Lord, we just pray that you will help us to be prepared to count the cost of being your disciples. Help us to be prepared to um, deny ourselves and daily take up our cross and follow you. Help us to work out what that means in this culture. And we just pray that you'll uh, give us a new vision and a new commitment to reach out to those around us. And we pray this in your name. Amen.